I stand before you to officially launch my campaign for a second term as President of the United States. All those you've been knocked down, counted out, left behind, this is your campaign. Welcome to the Swing 2020. In the most uncertain year in modern history, the only predictable thing about American politics is the unpredictable. This election is no horse race. Crisis management is on the ballot. It's the incumbent Donald Trump and Vice President Joe Biden vying for the White House. But this isn't just a vote for Commander-in-Chief. It's state houses, rural congressional districts, powerful governor's mansions, and bellwether Senate seats. It's prosecutors, sheriffs, and superintendents. And the results will reveal the pulse of the American people. The swing, searching for the heartbeat of a nation, is counting us down to November 3rd. Here are your hosts, Chris Baccia and Emmanuel Barbari. Hello and welcome to the Swing 2020, 10 days away until Election Day, 10 days until voters head to the polls from coast to coast in America, nearly 50 million ballots already cast in the mail being processed, and those will likely be counted after you head to the polls on November 3rd, if that's your plan. But in any case, we are 10 days away from election night where we should have some clarity about the results of this election between President Donald Trump, the incumbent, and his challenger, the former Vice President Joe Biden. We're recording today on Friday. You may be listening to this on Saturday. Last night, the two candidates debated down in Nashville. And uh, I think the takeaway here, Emmanuel, uh, is that not a lot changes in the trajectory of the race. Joe Biden consistently polling in the six to eight, maybe even 10 point range ahead of the president. In national polling, he has thinner margins in some of the battleground states that he needs to flip to win the White House. But this is clearly Biden's race to lose, it seems. He, he has the upper hand in every way. But perhaps this, this debate, which struck a far calmer tone, makes things a little bit more competitive as we sit here 10 days until Election Day. Chris, we've seen a lot of positive polling, at least in the approvals, whenever President Trump does strike that calmer tone and doesn't come off as more over-aggressive and the more maybe some would say obnoxious tone that we heard in debate number one that turned into not really a productive night for America. I think in debate number two, we had a much more substantive discussion. I think the muted mics worked pretty well, aside from a couple of of mishaps where maybe they muted the candidate for a second when they shouldn't have. Those two-minute windows were two-minute windows as they were intended to be by the debate commission. So I think that is the tone President Trump needed to strike. And there was no other way he could go about it. I think it's one of the first times that an advisor message was really heated and put into play by the president himself. And he definitely took the advice and he was practiced, he was prepared, and he was the one who needed to make that happen. Because as you mentioned, it is a race that is Joe Biden's to lose at this point, although plenty of people would expect a a narrow finish. President Trump, if he wants a shot in a narrow race, needed to project that strength, needed to project uh, a tone of, of presidentialness. And I think he did that. 
And I, I think two contrasting visions were perceivable, especially on the pandemic. And like you mentioned in that first debate, you really couldn't even stake out where the candidates were. It, it was it was just a dumpster fire, as many many correctly called it. This debate, you got a little bit of an idea of how a Trump administration is going to communicate with the American people versus the Biden administration. Although you know the Trump playbook on communication with the American people and even governance because you've seen it. Whereas with Joe Biden, it's it's perspective. We haven't seen him in the White House during the coronavirus pandemic, but his vision is clearly related to, we're going to emphasize mask wearing. You, you, you're you going to see me in a mask at my inauguration, most likely in the month of January. He forecasted what he called a quote, dark winter. It was ominous language, but also language that is probably better associated with the pandemic than that of the president, who, even though he came down with the virus, even though more than 220,000 are dead, still projects a confidence, still projects an optimism. And while that feels like it misses the mark to a lot of Americans who have seen their lives adjusted and changed, at the same time, there's currency in that because that's what people want to hear. People want to hear optimism in what has been a very difficult number of months and what projects to be a number of difficult months ahead. And they hear from the president, look, there's going to be a vaccine in a matter of weeks, he says. He cites companies. Um, he talks about not only the vaccine, but about businesses being opened and, and a bustling economy. Is it, is it based in fact? Is it based in any sort of projectable economics? I'm not sure, but it may not matter. That may be a message that Americans are more excited to receive. But then, of course, there's other, a group of Americans that are more realistic and they hear what Joe Biden is saying. And they're saying that that is the reality that we live in right now. I think it's an interesting discussion to have because I think there is at least a sector of Americans who have some sort of COVID-19 fatigue and they probably are not the biggest fans of seeing it on their airwaves every single night and continuing to face what is a reality and a harsh reality at that, but want to move forward and return to some form of normal life even though it may not happen in the near future. So that messaging, I think, is an interesting discussion because uh, President Trump does want to present the, the optimism. He wants people to see a return to what he called the greatest economy in American history back in 2019. For, for Joe Biden, it's more, I'm leveling with you. This is a darker time. It's just a reality. Trump will probably hit him on the fact that look, you're presenting a dark image for America, but it is a dark time in, a, in several ways. We're facing these crises and have to face them head on. So I, I think there was that distinct messaging. Uh, there's definitely clarity on where the candidates stand and how they're going to communicate with the American people. And we did see a short message from both campaigns last night. Trump was very prepared. He was very practiced. He gave his points in a, in a succinct manner. Biden did the same, and I think he was far sharper and crisper than he was in the first debate. I agree with you. I think both candidates fared better. I think both candidates were able to message more clearly, um, and I think that, that goes for really both of them without all the crossfire, and you're right that the mute button really helped. We know that the Biden campaign wants to make this election about the pandemic. If they can make you cast your ballot while you're thinking about how challenging the last many months have been for you and your family, whether that's job related, 
um, whether that's having lost a loved one or whether that is just all the adjustments we've made to our normal lives, then that's Edge Biden because they are very successful when they prosecute the case that this president failed, that this president did a poor job containing. Forget about him being optimistic versus the vice president maybe favoring realism. The president was the man in charge, the man responsible, and this thing got out of control and remains out of control. And that is a message they're going to have to hammer. And that's what the polling shows. You see a television ad blitz from the Biden campaign. That's the focus. You see language about the kitchen table, and there's an empty chair at the dining room table. And President Trump responds, that's political talk. That's you know, you, you were groomed to say a line like that. And he's not wrong. That is political talk. But the vice president isn't wrong to say that there are many American families that do have an empty chair at the dining room table. And so he's going to continue to hammer that. And while many Americans, like we were saying, Chris, are probably tired of hearing all the COVID talk, even though it's still a real threat in our country and plenty of areas are spiking. Right there's a reason why COVID is at the top of the Biden agenda. Not only because we're in a global pandemic for the first time in a century, whenever that's talked about, it becomes a referendum on President Trump. And that's what he wants it to be. The more it's, oh, let me present myself as a better candidate than President Trump, that's not a race Joe Biden is likely to win. He's likely to win a race where he makes it about President Trump and any failures he's had and particularly failures of this year where we've entered this, this unreal time in America. So I think the, the, the longer you think about COVID-19, the longer you think about the havoc it's wreaked, it could continue to wreak throughout the winter, is a win for Joe Biden. And, and it's weird to say that because COVID-19 is never a win, but for the political fortunes of Biden and the misfortunes of Trump, making it a referendum has everything to do with COVID. And that's why like when Trump gets into the nitty gritty issues and, and potential policy, like when he gets Biden to denounce oil or, or fracking and, and stuff like that, that's where Trump wins. But when the narrative is COVID, he, he really can't because it's a, it's a harsh reality we're facing. It, it, it's, there's really no way to spin it. Um, and, and, and I think he, he probably knows that, and that's why he wants to divert. But when you say making it a referendum, I, I agree completely. And that's the question of, are you better off now than you were four years ago? And while I think it's something like half of Americans say, yeah, I actually am. If you look at the question framed as, is America better off um, now, more so than it was four years ago, that number is in the mid-30s. And, and that really spells a challenge for the president to overcome the idea that on the conscience of almost seven out of 10 Americans, they're, they're saying, no, things are not better in America now than they were four years ago. And we've had a pandemic. That doesn't surprise me to hear those numbers. But, but then you have an interesting question about how a Biden administration actually governs. And this is something I want to get into because he is the moderate candidate. He was nominated in the field, in the primary field as the moderate. And, and he, by the way, has been not shy about saying, I beat Bernie Sanders. I beat Elizabeth Warren. He even said the words, I am the Democratic Party. Um, right. This is interesting. He's unified the party, but everyone is aware of the powerful voices in the Democratic Party that are far to the left of Joe Biden. That's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. 
That's Bernie Sanders. How does he govern, or at least how does he want to present to the American people like he will govern? Is he going to be a moderate president, or is he going to go in and really manage a liberal agenda, the likes of which maybe we haven't seen since FDR, perhaps just because the currency is there, we are in crisis, you can maybe maybe you can manage a massive infrastructure, something on healthcare, something on energy. How ambitious is it? He maybe wants different Americans to believe different things. And also maybe it just depends on if he can get the Senate. Right. It's, it's almost a discussion that can go any which way, Chris. And that's what President Trump, and you heard it so much throughout the debate last night, will hammer Biden as the, as the typical politician. All talk, no action, because he does speak out of both sides of his mouth sometimes when it comes to what candidate he actually is. But when it comes to governing, he presents himself as that unity candidate. If he is, and he's going to put people like John Kasich in his cabinet and, and reach out to the Republican Party, there is no way he's going to govern as the most progressive president since FDR. But if you're a Democrat and you think of it on the flip side, would the Republicans act the same way and try to unify and reach across the aisle? When you have power, it's your time to wield it. So if the Democrats have a Senate in 2021, if they maintain their, their stronghold on the House of Representatives, if, if Joe Biden does get elected the 46th president, you have a mandate to govern and you have a mandate to push across the policies that are popular uh, within the Democratic Party. So I think it could go either way. I would lean towards the moderate stance, though, because Joe Biden knows that if he does not denounce uh, the fact that he's against those things, President Trump just walks all over him. And, he, and Trump's made it a point to, to talk about Bernie Sanders, to talk about the far left of the party, because he must feel that that's a part of the party in terms of policy that he can walk all over and beat. So Biden has been very sensitive in terms of always denouncing that and always saying that his policies are, are what's going to stick. I would lean towards that being his, his mindset if he does get elected. And a lot of that will depend on the balance structure in the Senate. It will absolutely depend on how the Senate shakes up. And we want to preview an episode on those down ballot races that are going to affect the, the outlook on the United States Senate. Is it 51 Republicans in the chamber? Is it a 50-50 split? Um, or, or is it majority Democrats? And of course, that will perhaps answer this question. But there's no doubt that the Biden candidacy has to straddle this line between I am the career moderate um, I am the career compromiser, reached across the aisle, had a famous friendship with the late Senator John McCain, um, versus we, we know that there's a lot of energy for liberal, liberal governance after four years of Donald Trump. Um, and, and they try to straddle that line with Kamala Harris, and, and I think we discussed this in our episode talking about Kamala Harris, is that she seems to straddle that line really well because she has an identity as a young Black woman and there are certainly parts of her record that are progressive, but then she also has a very moderate streak and we know that. So that's their way of doing it. And he, he you know, there, the, you hear a story about, does he want to put John Kasich in the cabinet? You know, it's possible that he'd be a very popular president if he did something like that. And, and you saw John Kasich as a face of a Biden administration. It would be a, a, an almost bizarre sign of bipartisanship that, you can't recall in, in recent history. So maybe Americans would really welcome that. Maybe that would really work. But of course, there's a section of liberal America that says, 
we want to see Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders in the cabinet. You saw a story leaked, I think, yesterday about the potential for Bernie Sanders to lead the Department of Labor. There's a lot who want Elizabeth Warren to lead the Department of Treasury. So, you know, that that's there's bare knuckled Democrats who say Republicans were bare knuckled with us and we've got to go give it back the other way. Biden's really trying to appeal to those Americans who are who are just yearning for a time where the politics weren't so hostile. It's almost like those Americans who wonder, how did it get this bad? Was it was it ever this bad? Even though there obviously have been times in our history where it's been this bad and worse. We we fought a war against each other. So there have been worse times, but Biden is trying to play that healing card. He's stayed very consistent, battled for the soul of America the entire time, the entire campaign. So I think the bipartisan message is something he's really going to want to pursue if he does get elected. That will come with a heavy amount of backlash from the left wing of the party if it does happen. But I guess the the internal discussion right now in the party, Chris, is is let's get there first because – 10 days from an election, you have to do everything you can to win. And these discussions will end up being way more counterproductive pre-election. Yeah, you're right. And 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 I, I don't want to hint at any inevitability to a Biden administration because we still have 10 days till an election. And one thing that we will continue to say is that anything can happen literally up until the day of the election until people go to the polls and their polling places the trajectory of the race can change in the slightest way and even the slightest shift uh, can make or break an election. But to add one more point on the potential, um, the, 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 the post, the day after the election, or maybe it's a couple weeks after the election, um, about a potential moderate American government, which we have not seen in a very long time. Um, is it possible that the GOP wants to comply with something like that? We'll go along because they're going to have a postmortem if they lose this election. And if they lose this election, they're going to say, we may need a facelift. We may need to recover many of the GOP voters that we've lost. Um, And if they have to say that, maybe they will work with a a President Biden. But again, completely hypothetical and don't want to dive too far into it. 10 days remain. It's less than a week and a half. It's about a week and a half. Um, Outlook here, talk about the Biden leads. Um, nationally. But then if you look at states, you see him closing in on Arizona, maybe even confident in Arizona. You see him making a play at North Carolina, maybe a play at Iowa. But this election Emanuel, to me, comes down to the three big states that we've been talking about since November 9th, 2016, the day after election day when Donald Trump won. The states that we all were talking about were Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And there's no doubt that Joe Biden has averaged a lead in all three states in the polling, but these are states that have shown an affinity to move to the right, to move to Donald Trump, and you cannot count them out for repeating their act in 2016. To me, it comes down to these three states. It does, Chris. And when you look at a state like Florida, sure, it's a toss-up in the polling, but if it's a toss-up, I am, as an outsider, inclined to give President Trump an advantage, especially when polls have underestimated him for the entirety of his political career thus far. So if we're going to assume that states like Florida and North Carolina go in Trump's direction, it comes down to those three states once again. And would you really have it any other way? Because those are the three states you knew you had to win back. And those are the three states that cost 
Hillary Clinton the presidency. So I really think not only will it come down to those three, but we're looking at very close races. Statewide polling isn't always the most accurate. National polling tends to actually be on the mark in a lot of cases and, and averages project the popular vote correctly. But statewide polling, very hit or miss. And you're seeing some polls now from right-leaning pollsters that have Trump running even or, or ahead in some of these states. And then you see pretty credible institutional polls that have Biden with modest leads. So what does that lead you to believe? Probably toss-ups, just like four years ago. So we're going to have to wait and see. It's going to come down to the wire. And based on early vote data, and, and you don't like to get too far into the early vote data, because aside from knowing we're going to have a very high turnout, you don't know who these people are voting for, even if it says party registration. You don't know how the independents are breaking. So just going pure party breakdown on the early vote, I think is it's a recipe for failure. It's a recipe for leading yourself in the wrong direction. But early vote data would suggest that these states are going to be competitive. And even if the Democrats, who have a nice lead party registration-wise in the early vote in Pennsylvania, you don't know what the tidal wave of Trump supporters on election day is going to look like and whether it will make up the margin. So I think we're headed for a close race. We're headed for a three-state race once again, maybe Minnesota factoring in as well if President Trump is to be more competitive than we would expect. But this is what we knew. This is what we knew heading in. And ultimately, we're going to have to wait probably a couple days to figure out exactly what the deal with this race is. And these three states, it was the theory behind nominating Joe Biden. So you, you just can't forget it. He's, he's, he's been in the Midwest consistently so much more than Hillary Clinton. He polls much better there. There's a lot of reasons to believe that he's projected to fare a lot better in states that Donald Trump won by a razor thin margin. We're not talking about a lot of people who have to flip. We're talking about in a state like, in a, you know, in a city like Detroit, driving African-American voters. We know that he does better than Hillary Clinton does in that respect. We know that he does better with white working class voters who largely abandon Hillary Clinton. There's all the indicators to think that if it is a three-state race, if it is Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, that Joe Biden is the guy to flip them. Yeah, and think about it this way, Chris. So Pennsylvania was 44,000 votes in, in 2016. Michigan was 11,000 votes. Wisconsin was about a percentage point. That's a couple votes per precinct. That's really all it is. In states this large, that's a couple people changing their minds or bringing a couple extra family members to the polls per precinct in each of those states, and it's a completely different narrative. And Trump does not win those states. So whenever I hear the term landslide applied to 2016, furthest thing from a landslide. Yeah. It's not the closest election we've ever seen. It wasn't a one-state election. He was able to sweep the Midwest and credit to President Trump for doing so. But they were by very small margins. He won the entire election, basically, by less than 100,000 votes in 2016 because of those three Midwestern states. So, for instance, if you just want to break down the, the early vote in a state like Pennsylvania, and again, without getting too far into it, because you don't know how these people are voting, Democrats have cast, as of right now we're speaking, and as of the reported data and people are voting as we speak, 1,031,663 votes for the Democrats in Pennsylvania, 295,000 votes for the Republicans. That's a 70% to 20% split and 125,000 independents. So again, you don't know if a Democrat's going to vote Trump. You don't know if a Republican's going to vote Biden. But that is a substantial party lead that they're building in the early vote. 
And I just can't help but wonder whether this Trump rhetoric against mail-in balloting, basically saying it's not safe, it's, it's a recipe for fraud, could, could the presses turn out just enough where in a slim race, a narrow race that could be decided by less than 100,000 votes again in these three states, whether that could cost him the race. Because if all of his supporters are heading to the polls on November 3rd, they're going to be the ones dealing with the long lines. They're going to be the ones frustrated with the social distancing and COVID-19 and, and not getting sped up to vote early, early in person. So I can't help but wonder whether that strategy could backfire, because in a state like Pennsylvania right now, the numbers are looking very good for Democrats. And you mentioned 2016 was not a landslide, and there is a, a large narrative that the Democrats will be able to manage a landslide in the electoral map here. And the way I look at this map is I do not see a landslide. Um, it could happen. It absolutely could happen, but I'm not banking on it. And again, the mail-in balloting narrative is something that we all have to be ready for on election night because it's going to happen. You're going to hear probably, and it's probably going to be the states that matter when we talk about Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, all saying on election night, we can't announce a winner right now. We have more ballots to count. So that's probably the story there. But if you play around with the numbers and you play around with the interactive map, if he can pick off Arizona, which I think both of us think that he will, along with a strong Senate candidate running there against Martha McSally, uh, if he picks off Arizona, he needs to win two of these these Midwestern states that we're talking about. Unless those two happen to be Wisconsin and Michigan both and not Pennsylvania, then it's a 269-269 tie. And that's a whole nother story. But in any case, he's honed in on Pennsylvania. And uh, I'll give you the last word, Emmanuel, here on the electoral map. I think something to keep in mind about Arizona. Biden's looked strong there. He's pulled strong there. We would expect him to be very competitive. We're also expecting it to be very close. A Democrat candidate has only won it once since 1948. So the Democrats have had a real trouble, regardless of how competitive they've been within the state, getting above that 45% mark. It was, I think, 44.5% for Hillary Clinton back in 2016. So even if they close that gap significantly, they could come up just short. So you would have to expect some of these Republicans are going to come back into Trump's camp, and ultimately it's neck and neck. So Biden could win Arizona and put himself in a much stronger position if he does. If he doesn't, we're going to refocus on that Midwest and basically see what happens in those three states where, best case scenario, we probably have an answer on November 4th or November 5th. But as of right now, we know exactly uh, how it's going in terms of ballots and ballot processing. The mail-in vote tally is high. Uh, the turnout is high. And basically 75% of votes cast nationwide so far have been via mail-in ballot. So the rhetoric's going to come into play. Everything's going to be on the line, and there's going to be a lot of eyes on how these states process and handle mail-in ballots. And all Americans can, all Americans of voting age and citizens will head to the polls on November 3rd and make their voice heard after all of these other ballots have already been cast. They get counted after. And that uh, is going to decide the president. And we hope we've kept you abreast with the news. We'll see you again five days before the election. We also want to do uh, an episode with you on some of the down ballot races and trying to break down um, all of the, uh, the races that really count in determining the Senate and the House. That'll do it for 10 days remaining until Election Day for Emmanuel Barbari. I'm Chris Baccia, and we will see you next time on The Swing 2020.